This is Only the Strong Survive, a podcast powered by Khan Media, where we dive deep into the world of business, leadership, and innovation. I'm your host, Dan Khan, and I'm honored to have you join us today. So let's get ready to learn some survival skills together. Today, we're very fortunate to have Mike Spinelli on the show. Mike is a writer, editor, and producer known for his work in automotive journalism and content creation for over two decades. He was the founding editor of Jalopnik, editor of Zero to 60 Magazine, co-founder of The Drive YouTube channel and The Drive website, as well as a writer, producer, and host of automotive videos and content on YouTube and television. He also has experience contributing to Tangent Vector, Road and Track, Wired, Popular Science, Popular Mechanics, and more. This doesn't even cover half of his impact on the automotive media landscape. And recently, he made a rather large career move, which we're going to talk about today, becoming the head of content at the Motorsport Network. So, Mike, first of all, thank you for being here. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Dan. It's good to. Uh, I mean, it's kind of crazy to hear all those things. Um, I, <laughs> I can't believe it's been twenty years of doing all this stuff. But yeah, it's pretty interesting. You know, um, you and I have kind of known each other tangentially, at least for a really long time. And mm. I remember, you know, when I was at I think Edmonds as a as a writer when you guys launched Shalobnik, it was like. I was still working for the record label. Everyone's wearing like a suit and tie and there's these like punk rock guys that come in and I was so jealous, man. I was like, oh my God, this is so much cooler than what we're doing. It's so funny because I, I, I that's sort of how we saw it. Although it sounds kind of pompous to, to think of it in those terms these days, but it's sort of that's how we we uh, approached creating that. Although, you know, it's, you know, when we started the idea of a of a blog that was ad supported was kind of new and it was and especially in the auto space I, it was it was a you know we were just kind of making it up as we went along and you had a real roster in the early days back then i mean it was you and like davy and lieberman and i mean it was well it really was pretty punk rock well it's it's funny because yeah all of us sort of came from the the punk rock world um, or at least as fans, and I was in a death metal band and stuff. So it was sort of we we were used to doing a lot of things ourselves. I mean, I, that you know, the, it may be a little bit overused the DIY thing, but I mean that back when we were just doing music, it it really felt like we were creating the whole scene. You know, it, it wasn't. It was like if if we didn't do it, it wouldn't get done, and we wouldn't have it. So that was sort of the way that we looked at it. And then the opportunity to do it was was interesting because I didn't I didn't I was thinking about starting something, but I, I didn't I didn't know how to do all of the things that it took to start a media company. So I had the opportunity to start this thing for for Gawker, uh, Gawker Media, um, which had a few other websites at the time that were, you know, considered to be pro blogs. I mean, that, that was kind of a side term but it was like a, a professional blogger was a new thing and i said all right i mean i had been working at a, a market research firm um and we i mean that's a whole other life now but like i really needed to get out of that it was a very dilbert kind of i was doing work for ibm and um we were on the or i was on the hardware side and ibm was in the middle of a transformation to digital and, and services so I mean, not digital, but services away from hardware, which so I was on the wrong side of that transformation. And, and so to to like flip into the right side of a transformation was kind of it felt kind of uh, liberating, I guess. 
So let's talk about that. I'd like to go back to those who are listening, who, you know, many in the auto space certainly know your byline if they don't know you, but uh, not everybody will. So you, you're an East Coast guy, right? Which was sort of in, in the world of automotive journalism back then, that was sort of unusual. So did you grow up as a car guy? Did you want to write about cars for a living? Like what, what was the beginning of this whole thing? It's so funny because, um, you know, I was a, I was a muscle car guy. I mean, when I was growing up, like I'm, I, you know, I graduated in the late eighties, um, you know, and there weren't a lot of Hondas drag racing, yet, you know, and I came up from the, the, the New York suburbs and, uh, it was really all about, you know, drag racing on central Avenue and Fox body uh, Mustang. And, and do you know what? The Fox body Mustang was what your rich friends got for their 16th birthday. Cause the Fox body was still only, well, I mean, I guess it, it was new. 10 yeah, yeah. It was re- re- relatively new, but the good Fox bodies were only, you know, by then, by the late eighties, well, 88 was when the first, I, I always think of 88 as like the first good Fox body. I mean, I, the people would, would argue that 83 may have been the, the first good one, yeah. but carbureted no yeah, yeah right exactly so so yeah we very few of us had uh had good cars i had a 73 buick century small block um a friend of mine had a you know 68 uh plymouth gtx and so you know it was it was really like was still che- it was cheap to to do anything to those cars and you know the idea of racing japanese cars in the way that would come very soon after that uh, was not really something that we thought about very much. So it was so, an economy car back then, yeah. Yeah, so the economy car was a big V8-powered, you know, uh, usually American, mostly 100% American car. So, yeah, I mean, so I grew up in the in the New York suburbs. Uh, I stayed in the on the East Coast. Uh, I went to I went to school in New York City, and 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 that's where I lived. And I, you know, I was. I was a car guy enough, but then I, I kind of went, you know, we were talking about music. I mean, that was where, that was where I thought I was going to end up. I worked a little bit for Mercury Polygram, um, doing some, you know, promotional stuff. And I had some other, I was working at a couple of radio stations and, and it was really, I thought I would be in, in either the music business or on the media side of some sort of, you know, I didn't really get into writing and print journalism until I realized that um, you, that's a skill, like that's a really important skill to have. And um, yeah, that's why I just sort of veered into the the writing part. Um, And then when I got out of school, the internet thing, you know, in Silicon Alley, right in, in New York city was starting to happen. And that's, and I just landed at an internet research and, um, and consulting firm called Jupiter, Jupiter communications. It was originally called, and then it was Jupiter media, but we were the first sort of analytics, not, we weren't a full analytics company, but we did, I was in charge of uh, syndicated, uh, syndicated research. So I was more of on the publishing and editorial side. So that's how I started in editorial was uh, in research on the research stuff, which was mostly tech. Okay, so Jupiter Media was essentially you were doing, were you writing or editing market research? Is that what that was? Yeah, well, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't writing so much. We, you know, it's funny how like everybody was so young back then. It was like all the they were uh, the company was made up of analysts who were you know doing consulting uh, and analytics stuff uh, related to new technologies, new new internet technologies on the advertising side and 
uh, commerce and and content. And I was just sort of, I was first I started out like basically rewriting their research because so many of them, and I noticed that you know a lot of really smart people never learned to write in a way that was for publication really i guess so and, and not you know it was sort of um there's a lot of teaching i think that's why i'm kind of a patient editor is that i i've i've sort of walked through all these really complex stuff that that you know y these young analysts were coming up with which a lot of it was really cutting edge um you know but yeah so that's where i i, I sort of became more of an editor um working with writers. I did a little bit of writing, but mostly around then it was editing and publishing and the publishing process and all that stuff. So it was, it was, and it was also for me, like reading all the research was interesting. So I, I had sort of gotten a free, um, you know, either an MBA or a master's in, in, uh, new technologies, just, just hanging out with them. So that was kind of just kind of, you know, as far as setting a, a kind of foundation for going into digital publishing later, I could I couldn't have had a better free education than that. So you're working in this gig and you're sort of learning how to sort of edit and disseminate complex ideas and content in a, in a written form in ways that people can absorb, which is certainly an interesting sort of preamble to your career. Um, I, like I mentioned earlier, I, I, I started my dream growing up was to be a magazine, you know, car magazine editor. Mm -hmm. And I, I got to spend a few years working for Peterson and print and then jumped to Edmonds when I figured out the whole digital thing. And I remember the moment we were in a staff meeting the first time I heard the word blog. Right. And it was it was right. it was about the time I think Calcanis was doing Autoblog at Weblogs Inc. and Gawker was kind of I think it was around the time Jalopnik was coming out at about the same time and I thought that was like a weird word I didn't know like I'm like this is a silly word I don't know what that means and then all of a sudden and like because that that up until that moment I was going on long lead events mm. where there was like one or two of us that were working for digital sites and we were treated like the total redheaded stepchild. We were the weirdo oh, yeah. and all the print guys would like look down at us. Like we were these like urchins that had crawled up from under a bridge somewhere. And they were like the, the, you know, the golden God from the print magazines. And so it, it's so interesting to see how things have kind of shifted and changed over the years. But where, where, where are you in your career where you're working for this Jupiter company and, I think at that point, Gawker was mostly kind of like more like celebrity kind of yeah. tech, right? So, well, it's weird. So I had two years in the wilderness. Like I, I, I had made it through the rounds of layoffs. Now this was like the the first dot com crash. I guess was you know this was I was still there around two thousand two and two thousand three ish, something like that, and. Um, I had made it through rounds of layoffs and the company was bought for, I mean, basically pennies by, um, by a, a company that really, that, you know, it was actually a, a former publisher that, um, a Meckler, Meckler Media. I don't know if, I mean, if you're an old magazine geek, like I am, like you remember Meckler for, you know, PC magazines and like a real good conference business. Um, I think the Meckler conferences were pretty, pretty popular back then, but, um, yeah, so so the company had 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 you know exploded in size and then had really contracted, and I was one of the I think I was employee number thirty when I started, and like employee number you know twenty when I <laughs> when I left, oh, and wow. um, yeah, and my the the one of the guys that I had worked with there had left and gone to a, an IBM supplier, 
um, a company called TNS InterSearch, which was supplying a survey research to IBM as a core supplier, which anybody in the tech world knows, like if you're a core supplier, you basically hang out at the company and everybody sort of ignores you, <laughs> right? And then, and then you produce stuff for them. So I did two, two years of a very Dilbert-like, you know, survey data job, which is really, was really bizarre, which is an entire other show um, that we could talk about. But like, so I was there and while I was there, I, f I, a fr another friend of mine who um, came from Jupiter said, Hey, I, I heard that Nick Denton, the publisher of, or the owner of, of Gawker Media, which as you said, you're right. I mean, at the time it was Gizmodo, which was a blog about gadgets. Um, there was uh, Gawker, which was kind of snarky um, New York media news and and tabloid tabloid tabloid-esque yeah yeah tabloid-esque but what's what was interesting was that nick denton's theory about what what blogs should be doing and he was kind of right it was sort of the interesting stuff that journalists talk about when they're together you know not not straight up reporting like most journalists or people out of journalism school were taught to do but this was like this the other like it's not like what's going on it's what else is going on so it was you're at the bar with other journalists and you're you're you know talking about the stories you're working on and like this stuff that you didn't publish right and it's not necessarily like you didn't publish it because you know it was actionable or anything like that it's like you didn't publish it because it didn't fit the you know the story that you had pitched or the story that that your editor wanted um it's all the other stuff you found out in the process of your research so that was the original ethos right of gawker jalopnik came about because I had, you know, a friend of mine who was there or was, he didn't work there, but he had sort of knew that scene said, Hey, I heard that Nick Denton wants to start a car blog and he doesn't know anybody in New York who's into cars and he can't find anybody. And he I said, I know you, you know, we've talked about cars before, so I know you know at least a little bit. So why don't you, you know, so I just sent Nick Denton an email and he, he said, he just, it was just like effortless. Basically he didn't, I didn't do a lot of, I mean, just to back up just slightly, because he didn't hire me completely cold. I had started a blog with a couple of friends of mine called Lasagna Farm. And basically, <laughs> yeah, I know, it's a, it was a silly stuff, but it was Lasagna Farm was inspired by The Onion, because The Onion was really, I think, approaching its, sort of starting to approach its peak by that point. And um, it, we, were, we were basically coming up with, you know, parodies of what was happening on Gawker, right? And and then Gawker started to link to us. And this is when I got that that like that rush of seeing a bunch of traffic come to one of my articles, which was like some dopey thing that I had written, like in in like ten thousand uniques in a day, unique visitors in a day. It was like, whoa, 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 that's crazy. That and it was sort of like this weird feeling of you know, not being not like a celebrity, but like, wow, you just moved the meter a little bit. That's, you know what I mean? It's kind of a strange And that's moment. like, that's meta before that phrase existed. Cause you're doing essentially a parody of a site. That's a sort of a yeah. tabloid, which is kind of a version of parody. Right. So right. we were down the rabbit hole or, or, or behind the looking glass, I guess, or whatever, right. however you want to put it. 
um, through the looking glass. So you got you're on his radar at that point because of of what was it lasagna farm lasagna that's, farm right exactly that's a great name. Well, okay. it's just you know it was just like it was sort of a we were kind of making fun of blogs in general or where where blogs at that moment had had you know had been but there was there were also other like really good there was a blog called the black table which was like really sort of excellent writing um will leach who ended up being a, a fantastic you know one of the best sports journalists out there right now and he he came out of the black table um and actually i think he's writing fiction now i mean those guys were like real talents and um uh he ended up at, at gawker doing deadspin in the beginning and at this around the same time was when um the you know Gawker was looking for basically men's titles at the time. So that's where Deadspin came from. Uh, Kotaku, which was their gaming site, came around about the same time. And we started Jalopnik because Nick basically tossed me the keys to the site and was like, here, write me two weeks worth of posts. And I was like, are you kidding me? We just, I, we have talked to you once by email. And it was like, no, no, go and go and do this thing. And let me see what you got. Um, I'll pay you for, you know, the post 12 bucks a post or something where they were paying at the time. But, and so I had this other job. I hadn't left, you know, that my IBM core supplier job, I, I, I was sort of doing it around the same time. And I wrote two weeks worth of posts. I don't remember what they were. I think they, they're probably, you know, I, I can't, I can't imagine they were great in, you know, in retrospect, but like, you know, it was like, I was just sort of doing what I was doing on lasagna farm, but about cars and, and, you know, at the time I had been going on um on like the car lounge a lot and and I was going to forums cuz basically forums were were kind of the new magazine absolutely at the time so for, I I was getting stories from forum threads like I would even link to whole forum threads and go like this is what's happening in the car lounge right now or this is what's happening you know in um you know, Bimmer post, or I don't even remember who else was around at that point, like, you know, Quattro world or Audi world, you know, or whatever it was, or yeah, I mean, the, basically the, the, um, um, the guys that did, you know, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the name. Is it Vec? Uh, there was internet brands and there was a vertical scope, there was, but there was a lot of independence. Like, like yeah. you said, Bim Bimmer post, I think was one of the more independent ones. Yeah. I mean, even to like the early, like later than this, early days of Con Media, we had whole teams of people devoted to just forum work. Wow. Because that yeah. was such a big thing for a few years there until kind of Reddit and other stuff and social media kind of That's ate true. lunch a little bit. But yeah. But yeah. yeah. So, okay. I mean, I still, it's really funny because like I'm still, I have that, I have a 2003 Jaguar that's very finicky. Um, it's not really that, it's actually pretty reliable, but it's it's got some very serious quirks that if, if the, you know, the Jaguar forums didn't exist, I probably wouldn't have it. <laughs> so, right you know, um, so, but, so the forums were where a lot of things were percolating and, um, and the magazine websites at the time were not great. And it really felt like those guys didn't care, or at least their publishers didn't care. And the old guys, you're absolutely right. Like when we started getting a little bit of notice, you know, I was getting emails from legends, you know, I, I, I mean, and, and they were, cause we were, you know, we weren't, we didn't, I think at the time, like I knew a little bit of stuff, <laughs> you know what I mean? But I just knew enough to make, 
kind of make fun of it, but I never thought we were making fun of it in a mean-spirited way, which I think being mean-spirited came later. I mean, I think that, you know, I don't want to, you know, bash anybody in particular, but, like, I think the idea of being mean-spirited on a blog was was not something that I thought that you do. I think that I thought that you did kind of some edgy humor or whatever. And then people either liked you or not, but you also were self-deprecating because we were extremely self-deprecating at the time in the beginning when we started Jalopnik, but we would find a story. We'd make fun of the name of something, you know, it was like, it was stuff that the PR people or, you know, of those companies, they had never seen before. Like they didn't know what we were doing. They didn't know how to manage what we were doing. Um, especially the older ones, um, we were, I mean, we was getting angry stuff from like older, older, um, public, public relations professionals at large, you know, autom- automakers that had never been able to control the message before. And now they, or had always been able to control the message and now they were not able to control the message and they were furious. Um, and they didn't know what we were doing. We were trying to be you know, a little bit fair, you know what I mean? It was like, we were, we were taking sort of an equal opportunity swipes, but they weren't, they weren't swipes that I thought like, cause I was a little bit older. Like I, I didn't want to alienate everybody. You know, I thought that we were going to create a vibe basically and, and be entertaining and people into cars would come and, you know, and sort of hang out and see what we were, you know, talking about and also creating memes. I mean, we didn't, we didn't know. I mean, we used the word, I think, back then. But like, we didn't. We, you know, we were just creating things that, like, if you were if you were listening to the Howard Stern show, like we did, I think you would understand what I was thinking about in media, right? It was I was trying to create an ensemble. I was trying to create a bunch of inside jokes that people who listened like would be entertained by, and then they would, you know, they would kind of interact with. And that was the thing. It was like I got more from from listening to the stern show about how how we did jalopnik then then by reading magazines which is you know like, i never made that connection but i totally can see it now that you're saying it and and yeah. i think if there's anything i want to take out of this entire episode and if our, i want our listeners to take away from this is that you know this is a first in, in of, of a couple part series in kind of the changing shifting nature of media and and i, I think that not only is change constant, but it's accelerating, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think there was like from when Peterson started Hot Rod and then Motor Trend back in the '40s until really like the early 2000s, things didn't change much, right? Like that was yeah. a big disruption, but it was kind of this one-way conversation, right? Where you had a very very small group of media that would go out and they would drive these cars or shoot these you know photos and write content and they'd produce these magazines and we're going to kind of put all this work in and your role as a reader is just to sort of read it and subscribe. And, right. and, and one of the things that I think you guys did, as far as I remember my memory uh, before anybody was it, it suddenly became a conversation where not only did you have that kind of punk rock swagger, I, I like the Howard Stern analogy, but also the comment section was like, I, I mean, I remember before I even jumped into PR, that was, that was a real thing that like people, especially on the OEM and the PR side, they could not figure out what to do with it because right. all of a sudden like Jalopnik has this comment section and the readers are, are commenting and they're snarky and they have very strong opinions. And some of them were really well-reasoned and well thought out. And some of them were, I mean, it's like any comment section that if you're on the internet now, you know what it is. But like back then it's like, well, what, 
who's this guy with this like fake name? And he's like flaming us in the comment section. I don't understand. And we have to control this. And it's like, no, you, you, you can't. That's the point. Yeah. But well, I, I was I, honestly like, I think one of the proudest things about those early days of Jalopnik for me were, was the comp was the comment section. And the way that we created it was really sort of, I, I mean, I, I still look back and go how it was really the moment before things you couldn't control it that way. And here's here's what we did is you had to be invited to comment. We had to send you literally an email invite to comment. But we would send an email to anybody who asked for one. Right. So once in a while we would post like if, if you want to comment, you know, tell us why you you should comment like what what's you know like we, I, some of them would have been a snarky way but like why you know why do you deserve to comment you know that kind of thing um but we would no matter what we would give we would as, as long as you sent us an email and were a human being like we would, we would send you an invite um and we figured like if it if it didn't work we would just throw the doors open and everybody could just comment but what it ended up doing was the were the the people that came in and the, that were really interested enough to email us because they wanted to comment ended up sort of managing the other commenters. Like they were, they had a, this vested interest in the site and seeing it not become a cesspool, you know? So there was, they would, they would sort of police each other, right? If, if they got to, and I guess it's partly, you know, a little bit of, um, of, you know forum politics a little bit back then i mean that's that's a whole field i suppose um but that was one of one of the things and then the other thing was that if anybody got really out of hand and really like got got aggressively terrible we would execute them on fridays <laughs> <laughs> so there was a there was a you know it was like that we the, the thing about being sort of an edgy website is that you could do a a, a public execution of someone and and we would write a you know here's the case against you know uh eddie eddie is a jerk you know one two three four um and we would write the case out as a post and and they would vote we would have the <laughs> commenters vote on whether we should execute them or not it was like this weird kind of you know roman forum thing but like it was it was it was all a joke anyway but they were re we just wanted everybody to know that this is what happens when you're and we would reinstate people like we weren't terrible but like it was all it was all this sort of you know kind of everybody needed to participate in keeping the grass mowed you know what i mean and the, and the garbage off the lawn and that kind of stuff and that's well, how it had happened and unfortunately like you know the current owner of jalopnik doesn't really it has squandered the goodwill that we've created 20 years ago and it's it's a terrible situation now but um hopefully they can get it back because i do know some of the guys that are there but anyway well we can dive into some of that too and, and i think in those early days you also even pulled some talent out of the comments didn't you if I oh yeah right. oh but that's the great thing that happened later is that that of all of the editors-in-chief of jalopnik i think two of them i think me and maybe travis akulski i'm not sure if travis was but everybody else came from the comments. Um, you know, Kyle Cheromka, the editor-in-chief of The Drive, came out of the comments section of Jalopnik. Like, real talent, real people who became names in the industry were commenting. I, that, that, to me, that's one of the reasons why I'm so proud of it, is that, like, like, 
there was there's there are very few ways for people to become automotive journalists, right? I mean, in the old, especially in the old days. Now it's a little bit easier. I will now it's harder and easier. But in the old days, it was like unless you lived in Orange County, you know, or you lived in near L.A. or you lived in Ann Arbor, like there's no you really have no opportunity to become an automotive journalist and to create a feeder series, you know, for the industry. I think, I think we still need it now. Um, although, you know, people are still popping up in different ways, but that was one of the ways that, you know, Lieberman showed up that way. And all these people that I work with, you know, I see on the, you know, at auto shows and like the, they all started as, as commenters. I love that. I think so. And anyone who wants to know kind of what happened to Gawker can certainly Google that. Um, that empire kind of rose and fell. And as you kind of referenced, they're sort of trying to rebuild things now. Let's skip ahead a little bit. So yeah. so you you leave Gawker. And and I remember because it was sort of sort of interesting that you, you, you start this YouTube thing when that was, again, kind of like the blog thing. You were sort of at the forefront of that. So so talk about that for a minute with with first drive yeah. and then the drive and all that. Yeah, I mean that's so that's interesting. Like I had always wanted to do video in some way. I you know I learned to edit like on, you know on, you, you know analog tape based editing. Like, I did a little bit of editing, but but that was something that um, that I, I I was a magazine nerd first though. I mean I and so I figured like as long as I, I'll stay as a, I'll stay a writer or I'll figure something else out. But then. Before YouTube, right before YouTube became the predominant video platform, there were a bunch of other video platforms that were vying for it, right? So so it was like, you know, Vimeo is still around, but do you, I don't know if you remember Odeo. Like, or maybe Odeo was audio. I, I don't remember. There were like a bunch of... A yeah, Street Street Fire. I think street, predated oh, YouTube. Street Fire. Oh, my God. Street Fire. You, I, don't, I have to... I have to go back and 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 pat them on the back too because they provided um, once you could once you could embed a video into a Jalopnik post, Street Fire all of a sudden became a really good source of stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, but that's that was the thing. So um, when I I left Jalopnik um, in two thousand seven, and around the same time. A, there was a company called Next New Networks that was a startup made, from, you know, from a bunch of sort of TV executives, original guys from MTV and uh, who had been at Viacom, and then um, a few other guys. Uh, one of them was from, you know, like Buena Vista, and like these like sort of heavy hitters had gotten together and raised a bunch of money to start this studio called Next New Networks, and they were going to produce original content that was distributed. They had this name called Super Distribution, which, by the way, if you ever want to raise money, as I don't know if you, I mean, come up with a really great name like Super Distribution. We're going to create a, an audience that's bigger than cable by distributing videos or creating a player or somehow creating a system to track uh, video views. Wherever a blog, wherever a video is embedded, with whether it's a blog or whether it's on one of the many at the time video providers, and then you take all of these plays as a conglomerate and you have an audience and you can sell against it because I don't know what the plan for that was, but you could sell against it and now you have the next 
version of a studio and uh, a digital studio that it was like new TV, I guess was probably their selling point. Right. Yeah. And there were a few others like that, but they were, you know, they had produced, um, it was a lot of comedy. Um, Fred Seibert was one of the, um, one of the people that had started it. Fred, uh, is a cartoon. I think he's done is a a cartoon executive producer. He's done all kinds of stuff. He was one of the original MTV guys. And then he went on and did like, you know, um, I'm forgetting all of the cartoons that he produced, but it's like pretty formal. So was there a concept like, Hey, we need car guy content. Was that the thing? Like we need like, yeah, well, one of them, one of those guys who came out of, uh, Viacom was a car guy and he, you know, said, we need some car people in here. And he, he called me and it was like, you want to come down and, and see what you can do. And I said, sure. And I, I, I didn't, I had, I was kind of, and it's not that I was skeptical, but I wasn't really sure what kind of car content could be done as part of a digital, a sort of a horizontally oriented digital studio with like humor and, you know, house and home stuff and like some, some fitness stuff. Like how, where does, where do cars fit in, in this, in this wide horizontal world? So I went down and like the first thing we came up with was Fast Lane Daily, which, um, was just you know a, a just a kind of a rehash of the news done a little bit uh, or the car news just kind of done um you know kind yeah, of on, on video which was yeah. i remember when that came out and it was a big deal because no one had done that before in the automotive world that was cool yeah and it was kind of funny because like for us it was like well we're gonna they're gonna take the muscles from jalop the jalopnik muscles of of doing new you know coming up with news stories and just kind of you know making them a little bit funny or whatever and kind of built that and there wasn't there was an audience for that um and as it turns out i found out later it was a lot it was a a, it was a very young audience i guess back then but it was like kids would would watch fast lane daily when they got home from school and it was every single day so they always had something to read uh something to watch you know it was i mean we came up with one every morning um and so you know, if you were going to school or going to work, like you could watch it during lunch at work or you could watch it after school or whatever, however, wherever it was. And it was, you know, it was hard to get, con- it was hard to get content and footage and stuff back then. Um, but uh, we still, we made it work and uh, we had some good hosts and yeah, so that was the first thing. And then we, then we did a show called Garage 419 when I met Matt Farah and uh, Matt Farah ended up, you know, doing a talk kind of a talk show because i you know you kind of knew that that guy had a had some talent you know like even he had he had uh had um a car club in in new york and he would do some videos and he would sort of host those car club events and it was like yeah that guy maybe he's it's a little unpolished right now but he's gonna be somebody <laughs> it's kind of that funny. was that was corvette driving lamb chop wearing matt Farrow, right <laughs> Yeah, he had some. He had some uh, some lamb chops at that point. Yeah, he did. I remember it was, that. It was, yeah, very choppy. Um, yeah, so right. So he had the Corvette and the lamb chops and the. But he um, he learned very fast how to do content, how to host car shows about cars, and so we did some of that. And then eventually, this startup kind of fizzled out, and YouTube bought its bones. And um, and then so YouTube took this this framework that they had with this studio and they turned it into the YouTube Creator Studio. So all of those people that worked for Next New Networks that were, were our colleagues 
ended up over at Gawker, uh, Gawker, sorry, ended up over at, uh, at YouTube in Culver City creating the creator program. And, you know, we see where that went. And that was when YouTube, I think by 2006, 2007, it was pretty clear that YouTube was going to be the dominant force. And once they were the dominant force, their model of taking half of your revenue in exchange for, you know, running your content and, and also putting some ads up, it, it made Next New Network's original model of super distribution obsolete because now they had to hand over half of their revenue. Um, right. So that was, it was interesting to see that sort of as, as the new economic models start to evolve, like you could see where content starts, content production starts to shift. And that, that was sort of interesting, but we were, I left and went back to writing, uh, freelance content when they went to YouTube. But, um, yeah, so that, but that led, that led into drive because, um, that was when YouTube created the made for web program where they were going to spend some R and D money, basically, you know, um, getting producer, giving producers money to produce things. Um, so that's like, that's the whole next level. That's where the drive, that's where drive and the, eventually the drive came from. So, so let's walk through that. Cause so yeah, so drive was a YouTube channel first, right? Or YouTube show, I guess. Right. And then, well, and then time came along later. Right. So like, let's make, I yeah. want to make sure the listeners understand that because I think some people get confused about that whole thing. Yeah. This is where it gets really confusing because at the time YouTube, um, was, YouTube, we had applied for um, to become one of the producers of uh, in this made for web program in the automotive space. So the whole idea was to gather automotive producers and then, uh, you know, they had hired a bunch of salespeople and then they take all the automotive content and they sell uh, a campaign against it. And and then they would use that money to pay down what they gave the producers originally. So it was a lot like the music business where they give you a, 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 an advance and then you pay down the advance by producing content for them. And then the first amount they get. And then once you pay that down, um, then it's, it's revenue. And that means there's like a team of ad sales guys sitting in a Google YouTube office somewhere, I assume calling and selling these ads against the content you're making. You guys aren't doing the ad sales, right? It's no, it's, it, no, but and but they at the time I I remember hearing something like Google had hired like fifty four hundred I don't know why that very specific number fifty four hundred ad sales people across all the all the verticals, so they had a, they had a set, apparently assembled this great team, um, and yeah we wouldn't have to really do anything, uh, except we were on the hook for one hundred and thirty hours a year of content. So that's when we called everybody we knew and you know. Uh, J.F. Musial, who uh, I work with, or I, I, you know, I still work with a little bit at, at Tangent Vector, his commercial um, creative studio. Um, he called me and said, "Hey, look, we're gonna we're gonna put this package together. You know, you want to be a part of it?" And I was like, "Sure." And you know, I think he had I had been working with Chris Harris at Zero to Sixty <clears throat> just for print, though. Like he was a journalist in the UK, and he had cars. And <clears throat> sorry, we um. He was a you know a guy that I knew and I got to know pretty well and 
he got involved, and of course Farah got involved, and and uh, Mike Musto, who was a uh, uh, had been. This is sort of as an aside. I had a um, I had a a satellite TV. It was a a, a serious satellite radio show that <laughs> that I inherited from a, a friend of mine. We were <clears throat> this is a this is a sort of a side story, and this is like how being in every part of media never saying no to anything i think is the is really the key um i was working i was writing a bit for maxim magazine and they had a radio show that they did on sirius it was a friend of mine john wilde who was the editor over there and we started doing it together and then he left to go to another magazine and i ended up with the with the show by myself and i just because i had known matt i said why you know we this was a kind of in between uh, next new networks and then and the drive and drive and i asked him i said hey do you want to come on the radio and do this thing so he did and 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 we took mike musto which he knew uh who a guy he knew and i also knew a little bit and we ended up doing almost cl- close to the stern show that i was that i was trying to put together anyway the stern show for cars and we did that a little bit um so um that was oh uh, man yeah, so that was how I forgot. You know what? I forgot where I was. You were asking me. So, so, so that was. So, so, you, so that's how you got to know Musto. And that's how I got to know Musto. You're, oh. you're, you're doing the drive. Yes. Yeah, so this was the. Sorry, this was the the team that ended up doing um, a, a week's worth of content on the drive. Right. So that's how Musto got in because Mike and because. Uh, and then and I, somewhere along the line, because I remember very clearly. You know the blog thing. Up, I mean, I, I mean, at the beginning of this, to go back a minute, yeah. In the early days, I remember going on long lead events, and for those who don't know what that means, like if an automaker has like launching a new vehicle, right? There's like, and, and a lot of times they'll spend more money on a if it's not like a refresh, if it's like a totally new platform, they'll have a bigger budget, and they'll like usually have a more elaborate sort of press launch where they fly everyone out to somewhere cool, and whether it's a racetrack or Europe or whatever, and. And they'll do waves to accommodate, you know, X number of people per wave. And, and, and then there would be an embargo to say, hey, you know, you, you, you can't write this or you can't publish this story until this date. And a lot of times it was because they wanted to get through all the waves. And then all of a sudden there's this print and digital thing where you've got the old magazine guys and then you've got the, the web guys. And, and uh, with the, in the old days, and you kind of reference this a little bit, Mike, that you were kind of talking about how like the magazine guys back in the old days did things kind of weird. Like I remember their websites. I remember... When I made the jump from print to to digital, most of the print books still had a 90-day lag on their content. So they wouldn't put anything on their website for 90 days so that it wouldn't compete with their print product. And in the meantime, you've got all these blogs that could publish same day if they wanted to sitting on all this stuff for 90-plus days just to let the print guys sort of compete, which was super frustrating for us. And, and, and I think probably kind of a mixed bag for the automakers. Cause they wanted, like you said, they wanted to control the message and the PR people, which I am now. So I, I get it, but yeah, it, it created sort of a weird ecosystem. Right. So I remember it was this very kind of gorilla thing. And I remember you guys, you know, broke some embargoes and that was sort of interesting and, and very exciting for the readers and, and, and sort of maybe like ruffled some feathers in the old guard. And then I remember when I heard for the first time that the drive that drive the YouTube channel suddenly was going to turn into this other thing. And I remember the gossip mill in our little knitting circle was like time magazine is investing all this money and like Spinelli is going to do it. And there's gonna be a fancy office in New York. And it was, Oh yeah. 
it was very weird. Cause I remember that was for me anyway, on the outside, that was the moment where I'm like, Oh wow. The, the blog thing is growing up. Like this is suddenly a real thing. And it's not just a bunch of pirates on a pirate ship anymore. Is that, <laughs> what, what was it like actually in the driver's seat of that whole experience? Well, you know, what's so funny is that it, it certainly seems like that. I mean, I think at the time, um, so it, it's very funny. You should mention the, um, the, the, what we, we call the buff books back then, because they were also involved in this made for web program that YouTube had, had created. So Hearst was in there with, um, uh, I think with car and driver and, uh, and, and, um, motor trend was in there as well. So, and just looking at the different ways. So we were completely organic. So we created the drive, we created drive the YouTube channel. Just, just, we had people, we, people we knew who did this thing fairly professionally and we had video creators, we, video producers we knew cause you know, just, just working with people at uh, next new networks. So we just created this thing the way that we thought it should look and, and, and the look and feel of it was all stuff that we created. But it was very interesting to see how the big media companies were approaching getting that money to produce video for YouTube. And so on one side, you had Hearst that was trying to create TV with it. So they were, they had like, I think I had a show called the, you know, finding the worst driver in the world and, and other stuff like that. Um, and so it was a very, t it was sort of very much in the television mold of, of reality TV. And you could see that somebody at Hearst was coming from the TV side to start advising, you know, whoever was, was taking the money to do car stuff to do, to do. It, it, di it didn't feel like what, it didn't feel like the guys from car and driver were, were really producing this kind of content. It was like, that was a Hearst thing. It wasn't a, quite a car and driver thing. And then on the other side, you could see what Motor Trend did and like basically set the stage for what Motor Trend in video would become. And that was, you know, Angus McKenzie and those guys like I, you got to give him credit because they just started. They, they did kind of the same thing we did, but they had a lot of existing infrastructure to, you know, to use to create great content. And so all of a sudden, like here's Lieberman and there's like Camisa, you know, and these guys that were like doing really cool stuff. They did the drag, the, the drag race, you know, yep. the, the best the drag race. In the world. Yeah. Yeah. They, they really, they really were thinking about what they had, what, what resources they had. And then like, how can we make this stuff as compelling as a magazine cover? And so, so that was the thing that was sort of the ecosystem. And then, then the, the wild card, because I think that Saab Kyle, do you remember Saab Kyle? Yeah. 86 or something. Saab Kyle I was was also was like the YouTuber who was part of that group. So he would go to dealerships and you know point the camera point his like potato cam at a car and <laughs> and say like hey YouTube how are you? You know, here's a you know the new uh 19 or whatever 2012 Camry or whatever it was. And he, it was he was so weirdly engaging and so non-assuming so while we're all out trying to do you know cars sliding through corners he's doing this very earnest content that people are really responding to and so he saw where doug demuro was going to be before any of us saw it and i don't know he's still he's still out there but like the yeah, mr the, mr regular and doug demuro were like 
Right. Yeah. Well, Mr. Regular was an Oh my God. Mr. Regular was almost more. If I had been able to say what would Jalopnik on video look like, that would have been Mr. Regular. Like if I had met him when I was still at Jalopnik, I would have definitely picked that guy up and made him do videos. Those early Mr. Regular videos melted my brain. Yeah. I remember watching those and they were so funny and they were so raw and they were so screwed up. I was just like, oh my God, this is un it was, it was, it was, it was RPM magazine. It was oh, Jalopnik. Yeah. It was just totally just a big middle finger. And, and I, and there was definitely a part of me that loved it. And I think a lot of people liked them. That's why they did so well. Yeah. And he was so, he had so many great literary references. He, like he was a nerds, literary nerds, nerd. Like he, he just was so good. Cause I mean, his, his fiction, I mean, I think that's where he sort of comes from creative writing. So yeah, the talent was amazing. Um, yeah, so so that was the thing, and so like like there are these like sort of quasi heavy hitters, and then you've got Sob Kyle, kind of going, oh yeah, all you got to do is just go to the dealership, and now and and everybody trusted him. He had this earnest voice, he, and so like when everybody else was kind of surprised that Doug Demuro came like sort of started doing the same thing and kind of built that into an empire, I wasn't really that surprised because like. That was the moment where I sort of started going, wow, you know, the YouTube audience is not a television audience. It's like the Marshall McLuhan moment when, like, you go, at first, a new medium uses the content of the old medium, and then it develops its own vernacular and develops its own style, and then all of a sudden, it's a different thing. Like, you know, in the I love that you're going J school here. I'm sorry, but okay, like the yeah, early, no, it's good. <laughs> the early, it's so, it's so nerdy, but like the early days of television were just theater yep. with cameras, you know, and then it became MTV, you know, it's like, it may have, it, it took a while. It was, then it was movies, by the way, with, you know, whatever, but like, then it was MTV and then it was, it was, it was commercials and kids programming where like they changed the vernacular of, of TV to quick cuts and, and, you know, really like sort of engaging visually and that's what that's what these guys did they created native youtube content and we were cre still creating television we were still using the old television model um and they were creating like we were and, just and, we, you, we were and in, it's hard to compete with that right their production costs are a fraction and if they're getting the same or more views and at significantly less cost how do you compete with that that's you a, know it's so funny that's a whole the business alignment with the medium uh and the cost structure and the revenue structure is the unsung hero for all of this stuff um and you're right i mean that that's the, the those are the strings that pull the the marionette you know i mean that's it, it, without the business there's no there's really no content and and the content is shaped by what the what the business is and you know if you you know so yeah, let's, that's let's skip around a little bit. Cause I, now yeah. that we're talking about it, I want to, I want to get into that. So, so, and, and we can, so just real quickly, and then I yeah. want to get into the business of the business, right? So, so you've got the drive or you've got drive going on YouTube. You launch this new website, which was kind of the first, like, let's put our big boy pants on and do a real corporate sort of attempt at a, at an automotive media site. That's not as gorilla, it's more sort of like, because I mean, I remember at the time, the drive was sort of a different animal than anything that had come before it. So yeah. all of a sudden you've got like real corporate backing. It's a, it's a real media company. It's not, you know, a scrappy thing. It's like, you know, I remember that was a big deal at the time. Did that yeah. feel different or did that feel like, cause I mean, you've got suddenly like big, huge ad revenue departments and, you know, 
people, whole sales teams in Manhattan, I'm sure, sitting in some office building somewhere. What was that like? It was, I mean, the people were fantastic. I mean, the people I worked with are my best friends. You know what I mean? Like, so I'm not, it's not, it was a terrible experience other than the people that I worked with. And the, and, and the reason is that, that, that corporate, when there's a, a corporate um, reasoning that's outside of, of just producing great content, then things are always going to go wrong. And, and I say this because at the, and, and, and I don't know how, how deeply do we want to get into time inks, corporate situation at the time. Right. And I, and again, I, I don't want to take too much time, but I want to try to make this really clear because, because what happened was with time Inc, they were, they split off of time Warner and they, all of the magazine properties were packaged together and all of the debt was packaged with them. So that this is a you know a little bit of 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 uh of Time Warner's um kind of I'm I'm no CFO but I know what why you do stuff like that. You send all that stuff on an ice flow and you basically send it out to be captured by a bigger fish, right? I mean that was the whole point of Time Inc at the time was to be either merge or to be to be bought by something bigger right um and again i'm simplifying this because i'm not in the financial services industry but but that's basically what happened and so that's the structure in which we we landed and and during that that time when time inc was trying to find a, a buyer or a partner um this they were they were fighting the 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 curve of print advertising was on the way down and the curve of di of their digital advertising was on the way up and the whole balancing act was to you know get that bottom curve up to where the top curve is without the company going out of business first right like it was i think it was kind of that dire even though you don't think of time inc as being a company in trouble but the fact that it's gone now you know that was the stuff that was happening so basically the um you know the 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 ceo at the time said hey you know we need to have our stock price aligned with what the market will bear to buy us right at the same time none of the board members want to lose their shirts they don't want to sell it too low right so the idea was to create this take some of their cash reserves and build this internal this new incubator for digital technology, make it really sexy, you know, make a lot of real sort of high profile M&A um, uh, stuff, mergers and acquisitions of, of content like the Drive YouTube channel and in all other places and then create this like big, sexy, cool um, loft they space. To, they were trying to turn a printing press company into a... A, a basically a tech company because yes. that's more appealing to sell at some point, basically. Is that yes, right? absolutely. Yes. Okay. That, that, that's basically what they were doing. So they were spending, I don't remember what the number was on that, but they were basically creating a, a very, um, well, I don't know, I guess a, um, a, a client focused, like we could have spun up a white label um, publication for a, a brand 
and in that in that group we could have you know we had the auto group we had a, a another um there was a uh, a new website about breakfast foods <laughs> called really? um crispy bacon crispy bacon i think it was called but I, I i mean it was just a weird moment because i guess they had they had done this thing and in doing that maybe it maybe it bolstered their stock price and and eventually meredith and you know not the, the other large very large uh magazine company based in des moines iowa came and bought the big old new york hot shots and that deal went through and then when that deal went through they decided to take all of their non-women's co- so they had a lot of women's uh uh content a lot of yeah, like life, women's magazines yeah. lifestyle women's lifestyle magazines and also like self and uh i think um fit pregnancy that kind of, that kind of stuff but they had a lot of really great titles in that space so they were going to they they sold off started selling off their you know the the crown jewels of time inc you know time magazine and uh time magazine went for a bunch of money and then uh sports illustrated went and you know Forbes, uh, not Forbes. Uh, what was the other one? Uh, Money and uh, Fortune. So, so yeah. So the company changed a lot, and at that at that point, they gave us six months to find a new place to live. And so, you know, we found a, um, a really interesting kind of brand new private equity uh, buyer that was looking to get into media, and we were a distressed property, and uh, and they picked us up. And that's where the, and the drive, the drive exists under the the company now. It's called Recurrent, uh, Recurrent Ventures or Recurrent Media, and um, yeah, that's that they um, we spun we turned it around and and I left there in 2022. So that's that's the short version of what happened. A slightly longer version is that they created this this other company inside Time Inc. This this sort of sexy digital incubator. And at the same time, their their old printing press company was doing pretty good digital content on their own. So they were like, who are, I, you know, like they were culturally, it was a very bad thing to do inside a company like that. You know, I was a, it was a terrible, uh, you know, sort of cultural. Was there, re- culture was there like resentment from the Absolutely. other side? Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Every, yeah, every bit of it. I mean, we were fighting, you know, I mean, you know it, was, it was not good. What makes what I think about when you tell this story is uh, one of our automotive museum clients years ago did this exhibit on the Belle Epoque era. So like that transition in the late 1800s to around like the turn of the century when in like Paris and London and maybe to some degree New York, there started to be, you know, carriages started to turn into horseless carriages. Right. right. And they had those red flag laws where. You know, they were afraid that the guy in the you know motorized carriage is going to scare all the horses. So even though your, you know, little buggy could go 15, 20 miles an hour, you'd have to hire someone to walk in front of the buggy and like <laughs> wave a red flag, which meant your motorized little motor carriage could only go theoretically, even though it could go way faster. You, you were limited to the speed that a person could walk because there's the guy in front of you waving the flag to warn all the horses. And, and it feels like that was sort of what was happening at that time where... The print thing was dying. The digital thing had already kind of turned into its own sort of ecosystem, and and they didn't really know how to, how the two things could coexist. Right. So, so it was a weird sort of transitional period. Well, it was also it was a weird transitional period, and then simultaneously, you've got Facebook 
absolutely right. destroying the industry by um, by over Tar targeted advertising, right? targeted advertising, and over inflating um, the 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 traffic that they would direct to these sites. So this is where the pivot to video came in, which turned out to be a bunch of garbage. It was just it was just you know Facebook messing around with their algorithm. Um, and that was that was really a, a, a tough time. I think what um, you know, this is what the point where digital native publications were really super sexy. Like this is you know, this is where like Mike. Do you remember Mike? Uh, Mic not Mike. Um, and uh, obviously you know, uh, oh, what's the yeah the big one? Uh, Buzzfeed. Yep. And yep. Um, and sites like that were the digital native, the new digital natives and, and vice had, had come up through there. And all of a sudden, like there's this, there's this new uh, TMZ and all that stuff. Right. And, the, and there's yeah. this, yeah. And so it was like, okay, digital is now going to be valued. Like digital media is going to be valued the way that they used to value print. And like now they took over and, and, and okay, great for a minute. And then we see where, where that took everybody right into the ground. So that leads us to today, and I, and, and I want to get into your current gig because I want to talk about that. But we're recording this the middle of November, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, it's been, a, it's, it's been a, kind of a dark week in automotive journalism this past week. It seems like a lot of our friends are kind of finding themselves out of work over the past week from several of the bigger sites out there. And there's some job cutting going on, and a lot of these are now private equity-owned sites and and i think your new employer is actually seems to be one of the ones that's actually growing and hiring people but give us a little insight what's going on like what why wow. is all of a sudden this all happening right now yeah i mean i mean i think that you know i you know i, I don't i'm not a i'm not a technical person i mean i think maybe at the very moment i think that sites have started to see real um real drops from the latest um, Google core update. Um, I'm not sure how that's going to pay out, plan out or, um, play out. And I'm not sure I haven't, I'm not in the, you know, the, the boardrooms of these companies that did the layoffs. Um, so I don't know if that's exactly it, but I feel like that is a, either a canary in the coal mine for them or something that, um, just is the flashing red light that says our model is is diminishing at a rate that's faster than we can, you know, we can, we can handle. Um, and and the most of these, yeah. most of these businesses, yeah, let's talk about the model. Cause I think not everyone understands that when you go to, especially whether it's an automotive site or like if you're into outdoor gear or you're into music and guitars, whatever it is, when you go to these sort of enthusiast driven content forward sites, there's no paywall yeah. on almost any of these. Right. So, yeah. so how do they get their revenues through advertising? Right. Yeah, I mean, so w one of the things that happened during the pandemic, and even a little bit before, is that that programmatic advertising. I mean, the advertising uh, where it's not sold by. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're sort of, I'm I'm not an expert in any of this stuff, but it's basically instead of selling adver advertising with people selling ads and making a deal, and then you get an insert order, and then and, and you put the ad into the site. And you get the money for that. Programmatic advertising is where an it's an auction basically that happens as the site is loading. And because people's 
you know, third party data, people's data, right? That, you know, that they, all their search history and everything on Google and all the cookies that have been tracking them through the sites, through sites for the last 20 years, um, they know who you are basically, and they can buy and sell your view on the way in and in the fractions of seconds that happen um, as a site is loading. So those auctions lead to the the advertisements that you see on a lot of the advertisements you see on free websites, right? So that's, those are the, you know, the weird earwax ads that come up and you're like, wow, I was just searching for earwax uh, relief. Now it's, you know, now it's showing up as an ad or, you know, or whatever it is, or like you were searching for boots and now there's a boots ad on the, th you know, all that stuff, right? Am I, am I close to what it is? Yeah. I mean, that's basically yeah. it, right? Yep. So, so that during the pandemic, you know, we, I was, I was at the drive and programmatic saved. Uh, I mean, maybe I'm being a little bit overly dramatic, but it basically programmatic ad revenue was extremely important, uh, to turning that site back on after, um, after leaving time Inc, um, having a really tight programmatic ad stack, they call it. And is, it's really all about traffic, right? Page views and traffic. It doesn't even necessarily page views and but well, page views and traffic, and also if if the data from the reader is available to the system, then then it's also what you know the 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 price that they pay is like you know is based on you know all kinds of demographic data that a person has, you know the kind of person they're trying to reach. So. What role, and as in, you know, you talked about private equity a few minutes ago, and, and, and certainly it has taken a much stronger or much more prominent role in, in ownership of a lot of these sites over the last few years. Yeah. And, you know, I know that, um, you know, there's this sort of affiliate kind of affiliate marketing, I guess is the right word for it, component that's coming into a lot of the sites now where you can sort of write an article about, uh, hey, these are, you know, this is a really, here's how to change your own oil and, and, by the way, you can buy some oil if you click this link and it goes to Amazon. You can right, buy some oil right. there and maybe, you know, that, you know, whatever site runs that story gets a couple bucks or whatever. So there's a kind of a rev share component to it. Yeah. I, I'd love to get your insight on like, you know, back in the old days when you had, you know, uh, like Gray Baskerville at Hot Rod Magazine or you had, <laughs> yes. like, you know, Chubba or you had like, you know, Greg Brown in the old like European car days, like. You had these editors that were at these magazines, and, and, and certainly, even when I was at Peterson, there was like one floor of ad sales guys and a different floor of editorial people, mm -hmm. and there was theoretically a firewall. Everyone knew the firewall was permeable, right? But like, you know, and, and if there was like a big ad, you know, if, and I'm just going to use this as an example, this is not actually true, but like, let's say, for example, Meguiar's was a huge advertiser in our magazine, and you were going to do a how to detail your car story, you probably weren't going to use like mothers you were probably going to use mcguire's and and like everyone sort of knew somewhere in their head who was paying their salary but also you tried to sort of maintain some level of kind of neutrality and, and certainly at the bigger buff books you know they're doing shootouts and test drives and and i i think there's always been a little bit of kind of like hey we want to make we want to make sure we get invited to that next long lead event so we're not going to say anything too negative but we are going to try and be honest and the people writing the stories were generally pretty good writers and pretty good drivers. And so I, I feel like to some degree, the consumer could read all this content and they're also getting 
some level of super valuable information. And, and I'm wondering, do, do you think as the model has evolved into this new thing, and now that it is very, very different than it was 20, 30 years ago, mm-hmm. is that still the case? Can the, can, the, can the reader or the viewer still kind of rely on these places as, as a source for legitimate um, consumer kind of information? Or are they better off going on TikTok and Instagram? Like, what, what's your take on all that? How has the sort of shift in ownership and the shift in business model changed the way you and your, your team do their jobs and the content that comes out of it? Well, that's a, that's a giant question. There are a lot of facets to that. So let's just sort of put aside the, the, the sort of large um, or, or just like regular media, the media business side, and move over and look at what's happening on, with YouTubers and uh, we call them creators now because the multiple platforms. So creators on YouTube and TikTok and stuff. You know, the the you know, regardless of what's happening on on big media with big you know big logo brands, the shift to people trusting individuals more than brands is. Um. It has been happening despite despite all, at all it's really i mean the fact that that you can you can get so much great content delivered by individual people on youtube who've created it and uh, i mean there's a lot of course there's a lot of garbage but like you can find people that you can really trust because you're looking them in the eye there's probably a psychological uh, study out there we can we could point to but Doug DeMuro, let's take, for example, like he's just telling you what he thinks of a car that he didn't get from the car company, or at least in the beginning. Like, you know, he's got his, his cargo shorts and he's got his, his potato cam and he's standing there and he's got his thing. And he's just saying, like talking about the, you know, the quirks and the features and all this stuff. And of course I trust him more than guys who, I mean, if I don't, I mean, I know how the industry works. I know the people that are producing it. I know, you know, I know that that these guys don't want to produce stuff that's um, that's not credible. But you look at Doug and you go, "This is just some guy." Of course, I trust some guy. Like, what is he? There's no agenda behind this guy, right? It feels authentic. It's an authenticity thing. Feels authentic and it feels real and credible. And unless the cargo shorts lobby's got him, like (laughs) I, I don't, you know what I mean? Like, like big. Big cargo shorts owns Doug. No, I really, it's sort of like all of this stuff was happening at the same time that we were having the argument whether whether the um, the ad sales people had invaded the editorial group too deeply. Like while we were having that big corporate argument, these guys were coming along and stealing, stealing, taking the audience away that we thought we owned. You know, that's the thing. Like, that's the stuff that's that's really interesting about this. I mean, the idea that that a journalist is influenced by the um, by the advertising that's on the site. I know in a lot of cases it's not, but it's very hard to refute. It's very hard to tell people that when you give them an argument that seems counter to theirs you must be you know what i mean like you are on a site full of ads of course you're bought and paid for like that's the attitude not coming from 
the structure of the of journalism versus you know the 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 wall between journalism and ad sales it's that's just how people that's just how people yeah or or the trading on access for uh, like you know I, I was on a trip paid for by mercedes-benz and now i'm writing a review of course i'm going to be biased right not necessarily but to the to to new savvy you know consumers of media they don't see the difference we could we could sort of um you know we want them to though like we're we've been create creating new ways of of um being transparent about the things that we do um and you know, I think we need to make that case for ourselves if we're going to stay in business. Like we need to make the case that we are human beings and we are we have uh, we have real opinions, and it's regardless of who the advertisers are. You know, that's when we start looking at Dave Portnoy over at Barstool. Like Bars, obviously, like he can't be bought and paid for. He's a he's uh, got strong opinions, and he's uh, you know Davy Page views. Like, you know what I mean? Like that. That's why that works. You know, I, I think that's an argument can be made whether you love him or hate him on the Rogan thing, right? He's yeah. got enough money that he can kind of do whatever he wants. He doesn't right. have to. He's not beholden to anybody yeah. other than maybe Spotify. So, that's, <laughs> right, you know. sure. So, I, I think that's a really interesting point, and I guess for me, uh, you know, what I want to so and. Well, first of all, tell us about. Sorry, I just I kind of derailed your question. I mean, no, but I I guess where's this all going is my big question. Is is where where you know you've been? I think we've established at this point, and hopefully you're okay on time. We're we're over an hour in, and and I I think at this point, to anyone who didn't know your resume, it's now very clear, and and I love how you sort of laid it all out that you have begin you have been at the beginning of a lot of really interesting movements in our industry, where you were sort of at the beginning of the blog thing. You were at the beginning of the video and and YouTube thing. You were at the beginning of sort of the, you know, private equity owned automotive media, you know, you know, movement and all these things that have sort of transformed the entire ecosystem of, of how like automotive content is created and disseminated. You've been there for all of it, which is, and generally in a leadership position for all of it, which is really cool. So, so with that perspective, and, and knowing kind of what's happening right now and knowing kind of where all this stuff, you know, is today. And it seems like, at least to me, it feels like we're on this weird precipice where it feels like there's a, something is changing right now, mm-hmm. but I can't, I wish I could say this is what's happening. I can't. So, so with, again, with the creator economy continuing to evolve, where's this all going, Mike? Like, what do you wow. think? Like, where, where are we going to, I know it's a big question, but where, it, it, well, so well, let me see if I could, put that together by connecting it to one of your questions before that I didn't answer, which was the question about um, affiliate content. And when you're writing reviews of things, and if someone clicks through and buys it, then you get a piece of that transaction, right? That was the, that was one of the ways that um, the, the, the private equity owned media was going to make their fortune, right? And and the it was the connection between affiliate, um, you know, affiliate links and and connections with Amazon and other retailers to share that transaction with media. Connecting that with search engine optimization was the thing that everybody was living off of for a while. It was like if you could get, if you could game the SEO system to get great placement on 
great search terms and then write reviews that connected the search term, you know, to, to people's intent, right? So this, it all, everything became intent based. So it was all about like catching people as they were on their way to try to buy a new baseball glove and then write a get, get them to your review about the baseball glove, get them sort of excited about baseball gloves, write the article in a way that maximizes your opportunity to get to the top of the search rankings. And then as they get to the bottom of that funnel and they click through and they get and buy and they buy that baseball glove, they get some money, right? That was, that was the, that between that, the programmatic ad uh, stack and the uh, just regular people selling ads like that ecosystem was supposed to save media, right? So that's where we sort of we sort of got to the point where Google got really good at figuring out wh how, who was gaming content and which content was more authentic, and and their the algorithm just got better and better. And so, you know, the gar most garbagey sites have been dropping off of the rankings. Um, and so that's what I just wanted to connect that because that's that's as we're seeing now the companies that. Um, that really were relying on, on almost that mechanization process of, of like, yeah, we have editors and we have writers. Um, and yeah, we do the news, you know, we do news, news is expensive, but we have some, some good people in there. Um, they're, they're doing, they're doing the news stuff and, and the news stuff brings in, uh, brings in people every day because it creates an, an energy to the site. So you've got news that creates the energy. You've got these intent-based things where people are searching, and then they, and and now, and now we're starting to see that like, that's not really enough to support this infrastructure, right? Um, especially as people, you know, people are finding more and more things off-platform, right, in places that you as a media company can't control. Um, so um where it's going right it's going people trust personalities right it's the next wave of of uh of media has to be done by people who are are obviously human beings and the and and the the trust factor between you know the people who are writing about the or, or, or doing videos or, or producing the content in whatever platform, whatever form it is, they, they not only have to feel, uh, they have to be credible, they have to connect with the audience, which is an entirely different skill set than a lot of journalists have. But then they also have to produce content that feels native to whatever platform that they're on. So if they're on TikTok, they, you know, the, the first thing that a, like, someone who watches a lot of TikTok videos does is like, oh, they'll know within the first millisecond whether it's a video they want to watch. It's an incredible movement in this in that direction where it's the medium uh, carries so much weight. <laughs> you know what I mean? When you're producing stuff. Um, that's not where that's not the total answer of for, for what your question is. But like if you're a media company realigning everything that you do around making sure that 
you're producing the most credible content, connecting with the most people, and producing it in a way that feels native to the platform that you're operating on is, I, I think, I don't think a, a media company can exist that doesn't do those, those things. I think that's brilliant. And, and I'm thinking in my own head, not just about automotive content, but even like in my own experience, kind of living through the last three or four years where the world has gotten a little crazy. Yeah. Some of my favorite, like New York times news editors have left and started their own, like, you know, yeah. their own channels. And, and it's just sort of like, you look at some of these independent creators now and, and, and you're right. I, I think there is, and I didn't even think about it until you said that, but I do think that there is sort of, you know, like Substack and some of this stuff where there is this movement where people are following the person that they trust more than, more than the masthead. Yeah. So, so that's interesting. So, well, one thing I left out is that it's also split by, by, by viewership. By, I mean, you could go by demographics or just age. I mean, there are, uh, you know, I was just talking to a friend of mine, his son is a big fan of, you know, donut media and, and Hoonigan and, and throttle and, um, other creators, um, reads books for school, but will not read an article about right. some, about a car. Like will would, will not just will not. And that wouldn't think to, and that's the sort of thing. I mean, I remember hearing that the previous, uh, generational change where, where people were, millennials, I guess, were um, searching more on YouTube than they were on Google. And so now it's TikTok. And it's like, it's like if you've got a media company full of print journal or text based journalists, you've got a but they but but they've got all the knowledge and all the all of the they've got amazing, uh, you know, journalistic talent. And they've got all they've got all of these connections and they've got relationships built up over these over the years and they're they go into a um a press conference and they can own that joint you know what i mean like that you don't want to lose those are people you don't want to lose even if what they're doing isn't connecting with anyone because no one's reading what they're doing when they go back to the media center to write the thing so so that's like that knowledge can't go away right the knowledge of how to do things and and the relationships they that has to be preserved in some way but how do you take what they do and translate it into something that feels native to other media well you're right and i, I think there's something that our you know our mutual friend Corey burns talks about a lot uh mm -hmm. who who works with me and we've worked together for a long time and i know you know Corey well and yeah uh, he he talks a lot about the death of nuance Oh, that's a good one. And I think that is something that is sort of happening right now, right? Like, you know, what, what was once a 2,500 word article and then at some point maybe is a, a 900 word article or a 10 minute video and is now a 30 second TikTok video. How do you convey the nuance of something in a, in a, in a, in a Instagram reel or in a TikTok video? That's a, that's a great question. I think one of the things is that people are reading still. I mean, oh, okay, older people are reading, like people my age are still reading. I think the other, but but they, younger people are reading for fun. Like they're reading, when they do read, it's very selective and it's, it's for real depth of knowledge in, into something. So it's, there's, there is some, so I, 
there is an opportunity for nuance. There's always an opportunity. There's just less of an opportunity. Um, it, it every single thing probably won't be read or absorbed with that kind of nuance. Um, but certain things will be. Um, and it's sort of like finding those things, finding the, the things that really people want to connect with and want to go into real depth with. I mean, on the racing side, so for, for, for Motorsport Network, I mean, like, there will always be an audience of, of Formula One nerds who want to know what the side pods of the next car is going to look like, or what you know, what what the arrow setup for Baku is going to be, you know, um, and it, it like and and the more depth in there, the better, right? So, absolutely, and and, and I yeah. think Liberty has done a phenomenal job with their kind of Netflix content and like the, their onboarding of new audiences to F1 is going to create tons of opportunity for Motorsport Network and for other outlets that are covered. Like we just spent the weekend with another family that they have an, they have an electric Kia. They are not car people by any measure, Yeah, but they have gotten super into drive to survive. And for like, since season one, they're deep into it. They had all sorts of questions about F1, about the Vegas circuit, about Lando, like they were going deep into the nerd sphere and it's, they got drawn in through a reality show and now they yeah. want to know every detail. And they're like six year old son knows the name of all the major drivers. And I'm like, this is, this is great. And this is kind of new, right? That's like, it's, it's kind of, especially for F1 in America, it's a relatively new thing. So, Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really amazing. I mean, just looking at how, how just one really well produced, you know, documentary docuseries, whatever documentary series, like just galvanized, an entire fan base like that. Um, you know, I mean, I think there, there have been other, um, other ways in for like soccer fans, you know, and the, but the latest, um, the, um, the Wexham show with, uh, yep. who, who, it's a uh, McElhenney and, um, What's his face? Yeah, and Deadpool, Ryan and, Reynolds. And De Ryan Reynolds, right? It's a Deadpool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what <laughs> yeah, the, the, I mean that that show. I'm I'm fascinated with that show, and it's great because it's not just about soccer, which it is, but it's about the effect. It's not, you know, it's never about the thing, right? It's about the effect of the sort of deindustrialization of a town in in Wales, right, where the opportunities have just gone from being, you know middle class the dream of the middle class to to this sort of you know constrained uh economics to have these guys come in and sort of revitalize you know people's hopes for what could possibly be i mean that is really what it's about like drive to survive is a little it's got it's got a it, it's a human drama story there's uh heroes and villains it's like you've got you know you've got celebrities you've got you know these these like thoroughbreds, you know these like like young young thoroughbreds uh, of uh, that are the drivers. I mean, it's right. it's got there's so many stories out off of the track that that it's. I always say like we when I we've produced some things, um, you know, with Tangent Vector about motorsports. One show is called Drive to Survive. It's about not Drive to Survive. Jeez, yeah, no, we didn't produce that. Uh, we produced a show called Win the Weekend um, about IMSA sports car, the new GTP class and IMSA sports cars. 
And we tried to, we went, we, we had hot mics on the guys in the, uh, in, in the pits and, and in the garage. And we sort of tried to connect the, the garage to the drivers, to the things happening on the track. And, and that's the, that's really the thing is like, we all took that from NFL films. I mean, NFL films in the sixties made football a, a very, very dramatic event. So even when you weren't watching the game, you would turn on NFL films. And I remember watching like, you know, the story of Johnny Unitas and like, you know, these guys did the, the, um, you know, the gangrene, you know, gangrene and the, and like all the, all the stories that were these, these sort of deeply heroic moments. And they would, these sort of long lingering shots of the, of a spiral, perfect spiral, you know, cutting across the air like that. I mean, it was like, we're still doing that in some way. Right. And we're still trying to, just bring out the drama of of sports and um and even in in the car world like of of enthusiasm like how do you make how do you get to the heart of what enthusiasm actually means for people and not just like oh that's uh yeah that's a 289 four barrel you know <laughs> i like that's where your head goes i know it went barrel. right to the yeah. the mustang yeah i don't know <laughs> <laughs> so well good as a mustang guy i appreciate it well, I, I love that perspective though so so tell us for a minute about your new gig you know and i, I think it's cool that you're working for a company that from what I can tell appears to be one of the few that's really investing heavily in growth right now. So, so tell us about yeah. that. It's, it's really interesting. I mean, I, um, I've, I've been talking to the, the new owners for a while. I, 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 it's funny cause the first meeting I had motorsport network, um, for those who don't know, it has, has a, uh, a, 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 they, they cover motorsports, they cover formula one and, and motor GP and, and NASCAR and IndyCar. Um, and so it's motorsport one, I'm yeah. sorry, it's motorsport.com motor yep. one autosport as well. Is uh, right? Yeah. Autosport also autosport for, um, uh, yeah. I mean, these, there's some fantastic, yeah, those are great fantastic brands. motorsport journalism and great brands. Um, and on the, on the automotive side, it's uh motor one and inside EVs and then ride apart is the, uh, is the motorcycle site that they have. Um, and, and then they have regional, uh, regional versions of this stuff all over the world. And, you know, the, the, the first conversations I, I had, I don't know if they went very well. Cause I kept saying, I kept saying versions of why would you ever do this now? Why would you ever buy this media? Why would you buy going to old media right now? Like I had moved on. I really didn't think that I was going to go back to the media world. I thought like, I like being at a creative agency, you know, I thought like maybe we can do more things like drive to survive. Maybe we could, you know, find more stories and do more pitches and do that. And, um, as I just talked to these guys over the, over, um, over the year, uh, it, it just, they just seemed to get, I guess, as they did more research and then the, the deal went through and they bought the company, they just understood. I, I think everything that we've been talking about on this podcast, like they understood, they got to the point where they really understood the importance of, you know, being on every platform, the importance of personality-driven content, trust, trusted um, content. They didn't want to turn it into a clickbait farm, you know, because I don't think a clickbait farm, a clickbait farm is even, even like I don't know if that that's even that's that's just garbage content. There's so much garbage content that I don't 
I don't think even a real clickbait farm could exist right now. I don't know if, if maybe no. there are some that are working, but so, so yeah. So when, when you say investing yeah. in, in like personality driven content and being on every platform, does that mean we should look for like TikTok channels, Instagram channels, or is it original content or is it content that's been cut down from the site for those social platforms? How does that all work? I mean, that's a great, I, I think we'll do all of those things. I mean, it, it's funny cause I, so I'm, I, I'm the head of content for, for the network. Um, and what does that mean? I think I'm, I'm in the process of sort of taking it all in and developing the strategy right now and sort of trying to see like, what can we do? What, what do we have in front of us? What are the pieces on the table? Like I always go to the, you know, the uh, Apollo 13 metaphor where like they have the table full of parts and they've got to, <laughs> you know, they've got to, you know, get this filter in place so that they don't asphyxiate everybody as they come around the moon. Um, and I think a lot of it is that because I think they, you know, they, it, it's a, it's a little bit, there, there, um, there are, there's so much talent and we just have to figure out whether we're producing the right content for the right people in the right place. I mean, that's really, I, I think that's the thing. And we're really, really making personal connections with uh with readers and viewers and and also are are we what's the mix of stuff you know i mean how many i mean do we start doing you know uh longer form documentaries do we of course we're going to be on all the platforms you mentioned i mean we but we have to be there in a way that again like feels native to to the platform um and and you know what can we do to help people that are uncomfortable you know sort of uncomfortable with producing media for social for social media platforms what can we do to kind of help them uh you know take the work that they do um and and uh you know make it relevant to different audiences and that's really the thing i mean it's not it's not right i don't think it's rocket science like i'm not sure like i i'm not i'm no genius i just feel like there's gotta i've just gotta sort of we've gotta get together and put together a um uh, but, you know, I, if a, I think a functioning if I, ecosystem, yeah, if I take myself out of my role in this ecosystem and I think about myself as an enthusiast mm -hmm. and, and I, I think we're about the same age and I go back to my early, early days, all the way back to the print days, yeah. I, 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 I would look at bylines, which I know it back then was probably a little weird, but like, you know, I read road and track because it had a little more swagger. I, yeah. I read Carcraft magazine because Carcraft back then they were writing about street racing in like right. the 80s and early 90s when nobody was talking about that. That was like yeah. a verboten thing. You did not talk about it, you know, and, and these guys were literally going to the street races and writing about it. And I thought, right. like, oh, my God, or like like early days of Maxim where they're like dropping F-bombs in editorial. And I remember as a teenager thinking that was like amazing and and it was all personality driven. And, and yeah. even to this day, I, I think that's. You know, and, and I think if you guys can stay true to that, and I mean, even look at, like you mentioned earlier, like Donut and Hoonigan, and like you look at someone like Hurt, uh, yeah. who has built a real following because he's a real person and he's likable and everyone I think relates to him. And I think he recently announced that he, he left Hoonigan and is, is going to do his own thing. And, and I think people are going to follow him because they like him and they feel a connection, even if they've never met him. It's the connection. You're absolutely right. And by the way, I remember when when I, I went from Hot Rod to Carcraft around the same time. So yeah, that was that was definitely it. And I think that that was the that's those connections with with 
different writers. And I mean, that is the same. It's really just like Jalopnik. I mean, honestly, it feels weird to say all of the things I've been saying because it is, it's not really that different than, it, than media in the past. It just, you know, it's just that there's more competition for people's attention, right? So you really want to use our, we have access. I mean, that's the thing. Like we're a media company. We have access to cars. We have access to press conferences. We have access to people. We can ask them questions. You know, they will listen to us and they will answer those questions. And it's like, if we're not using that, you know, that leverage that we have to inform and entertain and, and educate and, and keep people, make them, you know, more interested or help them become better fans or learn about cars that they didn't know existed or, or whatever it is that we do, like help them buy a car that'll, you know, sort of meet their needs and also like is, is kind of cool and they, and it's something they enjoy to, to drive. I mean, those are all things that could be done on, on any platform, right? It's just that like, we, we need to, we need to, we, we have the, in the enviable position of actually having, we're already, our foot's already in the door. And if we're not using that access in a way that, um, that, you know, that, that, is really helping people and sort of entertaining and all this stuff, you know, it's, it's like we're squandering it and then soon we're not going to have it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yep. you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, um, that's, that's, it's pretty simple. I mean, I, I feel like there are people that are doing a lot more with less than a media company has. And that is sobering. When you realize like you've got all of this stuff, you've got this infrastructure, You've got, you know, maybe a, a, a credit card to travel with, right? Or whatever it is. Like, I, I mean, you've got leverage and you're not keeping up with those people that are, that are just hustling every day to do great The guy content. with the potato cam. A guy with the potato cam has got 2 million views on his stuff. I mean, granted, like some of the, I mean, we, we, you know, some of the algorithms are steering people into stuff that they already like. I mean, one of the great things that I used to love about magazines and, and, um, the old media world was that you would, you, we didn't have the internet. You would stumble upon things that became an obsession. Like they would, they would mention something and it became something that you couldn't stop thinking about, you know, like the, you know, the first time, um, I mean, I, I'm trying to remember like one of the first times I saw a uh, like a 944 Turbo, let's say. <laughs> like I don't know, like or or the first time I ever saw a um, a Camaro build that the guy had done. I don't remember who it was to make it look like a Porsche Turbo, like to use the same ethos of the Porsche. Oh, 911 the pro Turbo. Tour, pro touring. Yeah, cars, it was man. very yeah. early pro touring car from like that was I, probably I, Mark Stilo. Yeah. Yeah, it might have been. I have to go back. I I have the hot rod uh, issue around here somewhere. But just that kind of thing where I just couldn't stop thinking about old cars being made or 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 muscle cars and like the cars that I thought of as something one thing, which were basically straight line cars, to become like something that like oh it could compete with a Porsche nine eleven a Porsche Turbo. And now obviously like you know I I wasn't around for um, the early. Uh, Trans Am races in the turn, you know, the turn of the '60s, but like, or turn of the '70s, whatever. Um, anyway, but that's you know, the I, thing. Yeah, but you're right. And I, one of the magazine things I used to like is, 
I would get a magazine, whether I subscribed to it or bought on the newsstand, and I would immediately read all the stuff that most closely fit my interests. Yeah. But then eventually I'd go back and read the other stuff in between. And that's when I started getting exposed to, to the stuff like you're talking about. That's when I started getting exposed to maybe a vehicle or a story or a series or something that was not top of mind for me. And half the time I would actually get into it. Yeah. And that is one thing about the algorithm that makes me kind of sad is yeah. like if, if you're on YouTube and or on Instagram or whatever, and it can just keep showing you more of the same stuff that you're always interacting with, you're never going to get those in between moments right. where you suddenly get exposed to something that is not normally in your sort of worldview. Yeah. And, and I, 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 so that is where I think something like what you guys are doing at Motorsport Network is really important because if someone can go on there because they're really interested in NASCAR and all of a sudden they're seeing all this WRC stuff. Right. Well, right. maybe some of it'll stick, right? Maybe they'll get into it. Yeah. I mean, if I, we can get one person who hadn't thought of watching a MotoGP race to like, to, to, to see how amazing motorcycle racing is, like maybe, you know, maybe that, maybe one person might be, <laughs> it might not be a business case, but like, you know, that's the thing is like, I, I think that's one of the things we want to do is create our own rabbit holes is that, you know, normally like you go on YouTube and, um, you know, you, you follow the, their, the algorithmic rabble, rabbit hole, but you're never really getting anything. Maybe that, or so maybe, maybe there's some serendipity in there, but, but like, that's how we want to sort of create, recreate that rabbit hole, um, in a way that, um, sort of introduces people to stuff they might not have, you know, have gotten into. And I think that's the fun of it. And I hope it's still the fun of, of media, right? I mean, I think, I think getting past the idea that people don't trust logos anymore, they trust people. Okay. That's one thing, but like, you know, like, where's the, like, how do you find out about fun stuff that you didn't know about? You know, fun stuff. I love that. Yeah. Well, you've given us a huge amount of your time today, and I appreciate it. I have one more question for you before I let sure. you go. Yeah, yeah. So this is sort of the whole kind of, you know, the theme that kind of goes throughout this show and, and my life is, is I'm one of these people that I learned every lesson I've ever learned in life by making mistakes and, and screwing things up and then figuring out, okay, not going to do that again. <laughs> Likewise. Thinking about your career, and I know this is kind of a big question, can you think of like at least one instance where you, like a, a major mistake you made along the path of your career and, and what you learned from it? Wow. Um, major mistake. I think, I think this, this sounds like a hedge, but I really, I think the major mistakes that I've made have been not taking enough risk. Like I, I, you know, I mean, I've said yes to a lot of things and luckily some of those things have come, come true. But I, I didn't take enough risk because I don't think that I had a real vision. Like I go to, I look at Brian Scotto, right? One of my early mentor. I mean, even though he's younger than me, like he was an early magazine mentor for me, right? Yeah. Zero to sixty, Hoonigan. Zero to sixty. We, you know, he started zero to sixty. I was, I, I became editor in chief right after he left to go work with Ken Block. Um, and so. You know, he's always had a vision for what he wanted out of media, right? Like that guy is a, he's an idea machine because he's, he's kind of created his, his universe. Maybe it started in his head and he always had that. And then you could see it evolve over the years and you could see it emerge just by sheer will. I mean, the guy's like six, seven or whatever, but like, so that, I mean, I don't know. It's, 
it's one of those things where like he's just a presence anyway but like he's a guy that that had a vision and executed on it whereas for me like i think that i i was a little bit um like rolling with it like i was the guy in the in the bumper cars that was trying to weave around all the bumper cars you know what i mean like rather than commit to something and just go with it i mean that's i can't say that i've that it's like it's something that um i regret i mean because who knows how things would have turned out and i'm really happy with the way things have turned out and i've gotten a lot of opportunities by just taking things on randomly and some things have failed and i've sort of stumbled through more than i maybe needed to rather than um rather than sort of sit down and develop the vision and just and just kind of you know really really push it forward so i don't know if that's a, a failure um i'm trying to think of other failures um you know i uh like i think my failures my regrets i guess uh are not not pushing hard enough sometimes and and letting things happen and then trying to mold those things into something that works and then some then you get have a 50 50 shot but i feel like sometimes i sort of just kind of sat back when i shouldn't have i think maybe is something that's a great answer but i you wouldn't know it from the outside looking in because boy it sure looks like you've been you've been at the wheel of a pretty interesting career from start to finish so so well done on that well um, thanks i think i think one of the one of the things is like if you can if you can manage chaos and if you're they always say like you know yeah don't don't be afraid to like i mean it's it's kind of frightening to say yes to something when you don't know how it's going to turn out or like i don't know i've said yeah i mean i've everything i've done you know he's sort of i have to drop names but chris harris always makes fun of me he's like everything you've done has, has failed <laughs> over the long term <laughs> And I'm like, well, that's not everything. I mean, you know, there are a few things that are still around. But, like, like in, in that way, like, I, I was really hoping Jalopnik would survive because next year is its 20th anniversary. And I was hoping that that was a legacy that that could endure a little bit more. So I, I'm not I'm not really sure whether that's going to be the case. But so I don't know. I think that might speak to, you know, n maybe that's a – plus because you kind of know when to jump but maybe it's not because you jumped rather than stuck it out so i don't know i i i, I you know at, at, at this age you sort of start to look back and you go where where what kind of a what were the mistakes you know and you start to see a few moments when you go yeah i should have i should have stuck it out but sometimes when you're building things it's messy and i yes. think you've built a lot of interesting yes. things so uh that was great. I, I, I think that was a really interesting take on that question. So, so, uh, Mike, where, where, if people want to follow you, follow your work, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah. I mean, I'm right now. I, it's funny. I'm on Instagram. I'm Mike Spinelli. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, follow, go, you know, go, go to the, uh, go to motorsport.com, go through all of the sites, go to motor one, <laughs> you know, go to inside EVs and, and, uh, uh, and ride apart and autosport um and and just there's so many sites on there um but for me like you know i'm always on uh i'm always on the the the, the standard platforms mostly mike spin except for
except for Instagram, which is Mike Spinelli. I don't know how that happened, but very good. Well, that is the end of today's episode of OTSS. Let me know what you think by rating this podcast on the platform you're listening to. I want to thank again, Mike Spinelli for coming on the show and giving us a huge amount of his time and, and being super honest and transparent and uh, really, really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, so I hope you did as well. Uh, thank you for your time. And thanks for listening. Wow. Well, for those of you that have hung in there, I know that was a long interview, but boy, I, I just felt like it was so insightful and so interesting. I appreciate you sticking with us and I am so grateful to Mike for giving us so much of his time. Uh, that is it for this episode of Only the Strong Survive, powered by Con Media. I, I hope you found today's conversation with Mike Spinelli interesting. Uh, I want to thank him again for his time, and you can actually find him on Motorsport Network, uh, running kind of the show behind the scenes there, as well as you can find him on a variety of social platforms, including X. And if you enjoyed this conversation, I would highly encourage you to rate, share, uh, review and, and give us feedback on uh, whatever platform you use to enjoy podcasts. And you can also reach out and you can talk to us directly. Just email me at dan at otsspodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Dan Kahn. Thanks for joining us.